I'm Fritzi Kramer of Movies Silently, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to episode 26 of the Optical Podcast, where we're revisiting the history of VFX films and movie technology through the lens of Cinefx Magazine. Stay tuned for your chance to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefx Magazine later in the show. It's been a while since the last one, so we've got a lot of catching up to do. As part of my self-imposed mandate to revisit the history of film technology, one of the things I've gotten curious about is the introduction of sound into films. Fritzi Kramer runs a website called Movies Silently, where she promotes watching and learning about silent films. So I reached out to her to do a kind of crossover show covering the transition from silent films to talkies. Fritzi will also share her list of silent films with impressive visual effects to check out. And we've got some news about former Cinefx publisher Don Shea. But first, with me now is Fritzi Kramer of MoviesSilently.com. She writes a lot about silent film, um, but there's an amazing long, amazingly long crossover between silent film and sound in film, all the way up to you know what are considered like you know true talkies. So, what what got you interested in in delving into silent film so deeply? Well, I've always been a bit of a movie nerd. Um, the area where I used to live. There was no television. There weren't that many rental stores. And they just had a lot of old movies. And a lot of old movies were broadcast on the tiny little local channel. So I was always like feeling that black and white was the way things should be. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that basically all my movie knowledge ended at 1930. And I'm (laughs) thinking there are movies before then. So I went and... um, I got myself a couple of silent movies, and one of them, fortunately, was Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. Mm-hmm. And that sort of got me realizing how powerful it was. And then and then I saw The Sheik with Rudolph Valentino, which is completely nuts. And mm, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's so kitschy. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love to recommend it because it, it's... it's I mean, some people find it sexy, and I'm very sorry if I offend them. But for me, it's one of those so bad it's good movies. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm liking this. And so then I, I moved on from there. And the more I dug, the more fun I had. So that's kind of how I ended up here. That's very cool. I, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, I know about uh, Metropolis and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the Chaplin and and other the comedian films and uh, we kind of jump to uh, The Lost World because we, we touched on that when we were talking about Ray Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then I have like this huge gap of, uh, of, you know, silent films and early talkies and stuff that I just haven't delved into. So I'm I'm kind of fascinated reading your blog and, and learning more about this myself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you're liking it. Yeah, because that's my goal is to kind of act as a translator because so much of it, when you get past the basic, most popular ones, mm-hmm. so much of it is very technical. And I, I'm my goal is to make it kind of fun and quirky and share all sorts of interesting tidbits with people. So I, the Lumiere brothers uh, had their first projection in 1895. Is that correct? Yes. And there was one in Germany a little before that. And there was one in the United States a little before that. Oh. So 1895 was like the happening year. Yeah. Okay. So that's, oh, so, so three different forms of projection happened that year. Cause before that right. was the, the Edison kinescope, right? But that was a, right. just kind of a peep show sort of thing. Right. And those did come with sound, like um, the later models of them um, had like little stethoscope um pods that you put in your ear so you could hear music obviously it wasn't you know a synchronized recording but yeah okay so from that point it's it was never really silent silent movies (laughs) right right well yeah exactly and the audience was so raucous because you got to keep in mind this was designed for like the working class this is cheap fun entertainment okay um they were so loud you needed the piano player to drown them out (laughs) So there was always, uh, even at the beginning, 
there there wasn't attached sound for the films, but there was live musical accompaniment. Um, right. And most of the and time early on, it was uh, just improvised. Is that correct? Um, well, some of it was improvised, but they also had – and you can actually still get these books – um, they're, they've reprinted them or put them on archive.org mm-hmm. of like re- recommended photo play pieces for particular sh- moods. Oh, interesting. So like, um, you know, they would have one, this for romance, this for danger. Or if, uh, if music was suggested by the film, they would play that song hmm. or they might, or they might do a musical pun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, they weren't above doing that. What, you know, for ex- what would that oh, serve me? Oh, um, oh, just for example, um, if someone was in a bubble bath, they might play I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. Um, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> just, you know, because the audience would know the lyrics and find it humorous. I mean, right. so there, there are a lot of options with the sound. And the other thing is they had narrators because a lot of people associate that only with Japanese cinema. But they actually had it with Korean cinema and they had it with uh, French cinema. And actually, if you watch some early hmm. films like the Melies films, mm-hmm. they don't they don't make a lot of sense because they were meant to have spoken narration with them. So of course you're not getting everything with just the oh, uh, really? the images. Yes, yeah. And um I know the Flickr Alley Melies box set has mm-hmm. restored some of those narration. Oh wow. Sequences, yeah. Oh, I'll check that out. Yeah. It was so eighteen ninety five was the first projections. Before that mm-hmm. was the kinescope, but also a little before that was uh in 1892, in Paris, uh, something called the Pantomimes Luminuses. <laughs> I am so terrible at pronouncing French, sorry. Oh, good. We're in the same boat. We're in the same boat. So, yeah. Uh, the Theatre Optique, um, mm-hmm. which was, you recommended a, a reference to me, which is the uh, Flickr Alley Discovering Cinema a documentary uh, called Learning to Talk, which is where I'm getting a lot of my information because I felt like I, I read so many different histories on the internet, you know, different articles that were written. And it was like, it seems like there's a lot of conflicting information and oh, you yes. know, focus yes. on the American side or focus on, you know, this is a French documentary, so it focuses a little more on that. But there was... Uh, this thing, this uh, theater optique that was, I I don't know. It's, it says in there, not quite cinema. It was hand pictures hand painted on strips of celluloid and then projected onto a screen. And I'm curious, do you know a little bit more about how that technique actually worked? You know, I don't know much about the technical aspect of it, okay. but I know like even before that they had the projected glass slides or mm. glass slideshows. Um, and they would have narration with it. And then a little bit later, authors like uh, L. Frank Baum of Oz fame, mm-hmm. he, he toured with a combination of short movie snippets and s- colored slides. So that was really common to have the still image projected up huh. um, with music and narration from, the, um, from an author or some other renowned speaker. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm... I'm- I'll I'll have to delve in and see if I can figure out like find a little diagram about how this works. Yes, because <laughs> yeah, that kind of fascinates me. No, I, I it was the same thing because well we're going to talk about it a little later, but with the um, the sinking of sound and and image, right? Um, a friend of mine was like real electronic synchronization. I'm like that's what they said. I don't know how, so hmm. he's been digging and trying to find diagrams of that as well because. Yeah. It's like, how did they do it? <laughs> so that the documentary, the Learning to Talk, kind of separates things into, they call it three paths, the artistic path, and then there's uh, sound on disc, and then sound mm-hmm. on film. Um, so that, that seems a good way to go through. I don't want to like repeat everything in the documentary here, but <laughs> you should mm-hmm. definitely yes. go check it out yourself. Um, but it's, it's kind of a good way to separate it. Like the, the, what they're calling the artistic path is this live sound uh you know maybe synchronized in some way with with the film in just that you know we're trying to play it at the correct time (laughs) the music or you know adding uh sound effects in there um the thing that really fascinated me that there was 
ready-made sound effects machines, like a big mm-hmm. box with a bunch of cranks, like a, you know, a busy box for Foley artists. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, they're amazing. You know, um, there's a man, a gentleman who has a an, one that he's restored and he, they have videos of him playing it on, on YouTube and it's amazing oh, what wow. he can do with that thing. Yeah. The photo to, player. Photo player. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to find that and put that in the show notes because those are just these crazy things it's fantastic (laughs) and then it was not until 1908 that the first uh, motion picture score was actually like written to be in sync with its particular film right um yeah because um camille sanson um in france wrote one Mm -hmm. and then also um ipolitov ivanov in in russia wrote one as well huh in 1908 yeah i think like maybe one month apart um so the french were slightly ahead (laughs) i believe yeah well but the the so it's it's definitely you know not a real technical process there which is you know something i'm interested in in focusing on a little bit but the the thing that i thought was uh really cool about that having you know synchronized uh, music with the film you know you're either You've got the score in front of you and you're trying to just kind of, you know, synchronize playback with, you know, the film that's actually happening. Um, but, you know, how do you know if you're, you're a little bit off uh, tempo? <laughs> there's, uh, yeah. they show in the documentary, there's a, an Austrian film and another German film that where it has uh, like either, you know, a conductor's baton. <laughs> In the, in the corner of the screen, or even like a tiny, you know, vignette of the conductor himself <laughs> actually, you know, conducting from the screen. I think that's fascinating to, you know, have that kind of try that kind of technique to kind of keep the, you know, whatever music is playing live in tempo keep with the timing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then also they had that little excerpt of the German film with the, uh, the musical notes kind of scrolling across. Right. As as it and I thought that was an interesting method because I mean the films were hand cranked for the most part so you had to pre- rely on your projectionist as well to keep the time. Right. And there was uh, another technique that was cinepupit uh, where they tried to somehow electrically synchronize a paper score like a almost like you know, a long, a long scroll, like a piano player scroll, but it's mm-hmm. run by some impulse from the projector, I guess. It seems like it never really worked quite right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, th- I, that's the thing. I think it, it's so hard for us too, because so little of this survives yeah. that, you know, what really did work and what didn't work. And I think they bring it out with it, the different technology too, that, um, someone using later technology was able to make this thing work. So it made it sound more successful than it really was at the time. Mm, Okay. Because they were using later know-how to make it run. And so, you know, that, that begs the question, do we count something as an invention if it was successful in its day or if it was successful when it was sort of dusted off and reworked 30 (laughs) years later, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Are there any other interesting ways that you've you've seen where live sound was synchronized with the uh, films? Well, I know the the Fleischer brothers, uh, Max Fleischer, mm-hmm. I believe, and this is always dangerous to say someone invented something, but <laughs> I believe they invented the bouncing ball and in the silent era so that audiences could sing along with the um, the music that was being played. Mm. And then they also had those wartime songs where the actors were acting out the actions of the song and the audience was expected to sing along at the right, at the proper time. They weren't (laughs) cued from the screen, but they were just, you know, expected to sing along with this, with this song. So, so it's a self entertaining audience. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's like, it's like world war one karaoke. (laughs) So I think that brings us to uh, some of the first uh, actual sound recordings the first sound recording uh, that was, you know, used for playback was 1877 Edison's phonograph, I believe. Anytime I say first or invented or whatever in this episode, <laughs> yeah. you know, it might be the line might be a little fuzzy. We'll say that we know of or <laughs> yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, the, the fascinating thing uh, after that, I 
I didn't realize that he had also created this like photo cylinder um, version of it that was meant for, you know, playing back kind of an animated, uh, you know, series of, of photographs. So not not quite, um, you know, what what would eventually become the kinetoscope with actual film uh, and stuff. But the uh, this was it was the photos were wrapped around a cylinder, just like, you know, uh, the Edison cylinders for audio recording. And there was like a lens that you could look into to to see the <laughs> the pictures flying past. I think they had one. I, I used to live near um, Calico Ghost Town, and I think they had one of those you could use huh. on, on the premises. I don't know if it was restored or keep in mind I was a small child, but it was very cool. You know, you had the music, you had the you had the crank, you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't know if this was a real thing or not, because I was a kid and was not taking notes. But. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, he had the early Dixon sound experiments. Um, they're not sure about the date exactly. They reckon it's 1894 uh, with the the violin and two men dancing, hmm. which is which was a synchronized sound recording um, that you can see the enormous phonograph horn. Um, that they used to record the sound. So, um, so how was that played back? I thought from the documentary, I mm-hmm. thought that was being played on the kinetophone, which has so it's like a phonograph and a kinetoscope together. So it's like a people viewer, and then there's a phonograph player in the cabinet as well. But I thought it wasn't really synced up. Yeah, that wasn't. Um, oh, but okay. This was, just, this was an experiment. Oh, okay. Um, he wanted to do sound from the beginning, but the technology, you know, they just didn't have the technology to record it because I think they bring it out that you had to be around this horn. They didn't have a mic- microphone technology wasn't where right. they wanted it to be. They had to be around this horn. So, you know, it was awkward to stage a scene with this giant recording device <laughs> right there. Very awkward. You know, this cartoonishly huge thing. Right. I mean, that's how the sound was recorded on the cylinders then is that it would be it was just a horn and the, you know, the sound vibrations coming in would wiggle the needle on the on the cylinder as it Mm -hmm. the wax cylinder as it rotated around. Mm -hmm. Um, How was that synchronized in that test? Is there any details on that? I'm not sure exactly how it was synchronized, Hmm. but the issue with hiding the horn was mute was um, sort of moot because they showed it. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't know if they just you know timed it really well with their cranking or if it was more hmm. of a um, you know technical thing. But I mean, it it but the and you can hear it too that the cylinder recordings are pretty poor quality wise. Right. So. You know, they kind of have this wailing sound to them that's a little bit annoying. So, (laughs) you know, it's pretty obvious why it didn't catch on. Yeah. So then there was, uh, I never corrected his name, August Bavum? I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Um, In 1897, uh, near Paris, was working Mm -hmm. on an electric system to interlock Edison cylinder playback with the projector. But uh, it seems that we don't know if it ever actually worked because none of the sound survives. Right. And when that happens, um, when all the evidence is lost, you have to rely on newspaper accounts. And if they never wrote about it, then you're pretty much up a creek (laughs) as far as proving anything. But we do have the one that premiered in Paris in 1900. Mm -hmm. Um, What is that? That one um, is a version of um, Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, they actually restored it with its original soundtrack and its original hand color. Mm. Um, and cause they would go in and literally paint color directly on the, on the film cell. Yeah. That was something I didn't realize was yeah. so prevalent in the silent era as well. Yeah. That's I, I'm, but that's a different topic. I mustn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, but, get, I'll get back to that later. <laughs> yeah. On another show. Um, there were two, rivaled sound technologies um, at a, the Paris Expo that year. Mm-hmm. So they had the one where they had telephone receivers in the seats. Right. <laughs> where you, phonorama, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And then you had the other one that was uh, basically they would record everyone's voices and then they would 
act out the scene while lip syncing to their own recorded voices. And that's what this one was. But mm. it's absolutely hilarious sounding because the cylinder makes everyone's voice so high. So you have all these, you know, these French people acting out the um, dual scene from Cyrano de Bergerac. And uh-huh. it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it, you know. <laughs> but it was a sound film in 1900. Nice. That's the Phono Cinema Theatre. Yes, yes. I assume this was still an, an Edison cylinder that the Sanders recorded on? Ooh, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure if they used the Edison cylinder or if they had a rival technology hmm. that they could have used. Okay. Yeah, because they didn't specify. Um, and one of the interesting things I saw when, when for the playback uh, in the theater is that it wasn't there's no like automatic sync between the two. It was dependent mm-hmm. on the projectionist, <laughs> the speed he cranks the projector yep. to kind of keep things in sync with the audio that's playing back from the cylinder, which is just crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, th- and that is the problem that comes up again and again with early sound technology is synchronization mm-hmm. because it's just, um, it was so hard. And that's why um, when um, Gaumont um, was able to, find a way to electronically sync, that's when they actually found success. I think between 1910 and 1917, they Mm -hmm. released all of these little musical shorts, these little two or three minute musical shorts where they'd sing a song. And um, so many people were working on the synchronization and claimed they had it, but really didn't. (laughs) That when when they presented their technology, they recorded a rooster crowing because First off, it was the symbol of their rival studio, Pathé. But, <laughs> okay. But also, but also because there was no way you could get a rooster to lip sync its own crow. <laughs> I see. Pro- yeah. Proving it was really recorded at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Nice. I think there was. A, they mentioned one thing too. This Cinematogramo uh, Theatre synchronization system, and I I have not been able to find real details on it. Um, they said in the documentary that it has, it had arrows on a dial that point at each other when they're in sync. So I guess it's not, it's not an automatic thing. It's just kind of a tool for the projectionist to see whether things are in sync or not. Yeah. That was the understanding I had. Like, you know, if you need, if it goes one way, you slow it down. If it goes another way, you speed it up. And it must've been nerve wracking. Can you imagine? (laughs) Yeah, so the, there's um, microphones get invented, I think, just before 1910. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, Gamont was uh, working with that, um, trying to do recordings with the microphone instead of the horn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, a system that used compressed air to amplify yes. the playback. So finally, in a larger theater, you could hear... <laughs> Yeah. And again, I'm like, I wonder how that worked. I'm really honestly very curious. Yeah, I've been I I, th- I feel like I'm going to have to like dig for the next year and find all, yes. all these details that yes. I haven't been able to find yet. If you do want to know more, check out the show notes for this episode on opticalpodcast.com. There's some really good links on there about these different sound methods we've been talking about. More soon, though, with the rivalry between Gaumont and Edison, But now it's time for the Optical Trivia Contest, brought to you by Cinefix. And Cinefix 152 is out on shelves now. In this great new issue, Cinefix covers Kong, Skull Island, the supersized Simeon Lives Again in Warner Brothers' new spin on King Kong, covering ILM's monstrous workload, deftly supported by hybrid technologies and rodeo FX. A Cure for Wellness director Gore Verbinski's sinister tale of a mysterious sanitarium, visual effects supervisor Thomas Proctor, special effects supervisor Gerd Nefzer, and makeup effects supervisor Barry Gower created strange and hallucinatory imagery in collaboration with artisans at a number of effects houses. The Great Wall. Matt Damon stars in a story about ancient mysteries surrounding the building of the Great Wall of China in the most expensive film ever produced in China. Cinefix covers the visual effects, practical and makeup effects, and even the previs for the film's complex action sequences. And finally, Logan, Wolverine's return in a James Mangold film. Soho VFX, Image Engine Design, Rising Sun Pictures, and Lola VFX delivered the film's gritty visual effects. 
ably assisted on set by special effects supervisor Gary Elmendorf and makeup effects supervisor Joel Harlow. All of this in Cinefix 152. Order your copy today from Cinefix.com. Subscribe now, and in June, you'll also see issue 153, featuring Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which I just saw last night and I'm crazy about it, The Fate of the Furious, Alien Covenant, Ghost in the Shell, and Life. If you want a chance to win your own one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine, all you have to do is answer this question. Name the first film to be considered a full talkie. There are two answers I'll accept, and I'll give you a hint. We talk about them at the end of this next segment. Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website by midnight Pacific time, May 31st, 2017, and you'll be entered to win. One winner will be randomly chosen from the correct entries. Now, let's get back into the history of sound in films. And then you had this rivalry between um, Galwan and Edison because Edison Edison actually claimed that um, Galwan paid one of his assistants uh, a bribe in order to spy <laughs> and say oh. what, what the Edison developments were. Mm. And, and then he launched his own synchronized sound in 1913, early 1913, and its advertisement – said that any projectionist can use it. So that was a big deal. Like people didn't want to <laughs> fiddle with arrows and yeah. So they, they would make these little fairy tale films. And, but the problem is, is that they couldn't really, they didn't move the camera. And that was the time where things were starting to get kind of exciting in the hmm. cinematography realm. So it was this very stiff, formal um, production Mm-hmm. And the other thing is the synchronization didn't work. So it was like, you know, the cliched notion of a Kung Fu movie, an old Kung Fu movie where the lips are moving. And the, right. so, <laughs> so audiences were starting to heckle these things. And then the whole thing went up in a fire. All of their recording oh. equipment, all their films. So Edison, this is late 1914. And so Edison's like, forget it. And that pretty much into that and he was out of the movie business by the late teens but yeah so so that's an interesting little tidbit but this is very very interesting in one of the films um there was an actor who continued working well into the 50s his name um robert malash i hope i'm pronouncing that right okay he played the giant in the nursery favorites short where they do the little fairy tale thing Hmm. okay he claimed that it was not really synchronized sound, that they were just lip syncing to pre-recordings. Oh, really? So I'm like, the plot thickens. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So we can take it and, you know, what we knew and throw it away again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's always uh, <laughs> who's who's telling the story, right? Yep. Hmm. So around that time... <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there's there's definitely improvements in it, but, you know, not any like super widespread uh, successful version of this, like, you know, right. sound and disc synchronization, uh, probably, probably mostly because it was just the, the sync was so hard, um, you know, to none of the electrical systems were really working the way they should or, you know, the projectionist has to do it himself. So simultaneously, there was research into putting sound on film so that, you know, the the visual and the audio are both on the same medium. It's all locked together. (laughs) Hopefully there's no way it can slide off. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's so fun to watch, watch that section because you can see how, because with... With the sound on disc, it was like one step forward, two steps back, it seemed. Mm-hmm. But but with the sound on film, you can see where it's just steadily getting better and better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Like you knew, you could see at once that this is the answer. Right. Because the very earliest ones, he's got that squawky quality and it sounds really weird. And then as it keeps going, you can see, you know, the voice gets clearer, it gets deeper. And eventually we end up with you know pretty high quality sound. Right. I mean, starting back in uh, like 1900, 1901, um, there was a German scientist, Ernst Rumer, um, who had invented 
what he called a, a photograph phone photograph phone yes, yes. <laughs> some of these are uh-huh. hard to say <laughs> i know i know you're like oh my gosh i think i think they just wanted to combine as many words as possible <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but it's yeah it's using um by around the mid 1880s um uh, selenium cells were in use which is you know the same kind of stuff uh, not as refined but that we use in uh, solar cells today. Hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's a photovoltaic cell. It converts light into electricity. Um, so you could, you know, if light is hitting it, you can get a varying amount of uh, electric current and you can turn that electric current into sound um, with the, you know, the progressions that came from the invention of the telephone receiver. Um, but he, yeah, he invented this photographophone <laughs> which it uh, recorded through a very thin slit. Um, There was a, so, okay, sorry, let me jump back. Microphone. (laughs) So the microphone uh, provided a varying electric signal and that controlled power to an arc lamp. And then the lamp is lensed to focus like a very thin horizontal slit on the film. And so it's recorded that way. And then to play it back, the film is projected with a lamp behind it onto a selenium cell. So the selenium cell turns light into electricity. And then that electrical current is turned back into sound, you know, by that telephone receiver. So it was, you know, even as early as 1900, we knew that you could record sound optically. It was kind of crude, mm-hmm. but you could do it. <laughs> yeah, it was there. <laughs> yeah. And then it was pretty quickly. Uh, there's a, the first sound on film system there was a i guess a a patent applied for a british patent in 1906 um recorded on the edge of the motion picture film so it's you know right next to the visuals which Mm -hmm. you know that sort of system got refined a lot but lasted for a long time right i mean up until you know probably the the 90s Yeah, the it, 1990s, um, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it, it had a good stretch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, uh, you know, the Lee DeForest uh, developed the first amplifiers in 1912. And then, of course, World War I happens. Right. Um, and you always get that boost of technology. Yeah. It seems like kind of film went by the wayside, but there were so many other technological advances and, uh, and communications advances that... As soon as the war was over, hey, we can apply this back to film. I mean, as far as like big technological advances, I think the major one just post-World War was um, natural color, you know, technicolor having Mm. because there had been other color methods. But that was when they made the first full length feature film in in technicolor in in 1920, I believe. Don't quote me. Yeah. The visuals. I don't think benefited from the war quite as much, unless mm-hmm. you count like expressionism um, sure. as much as the sound technology. Yeah. I really want to delve into this, like in a separate episode, kind of the development of how oh, yay. <laughs> the, you know, yeah. color came in and, and all of that. Yeah. It just fascinates oh. me. Oh yeah. I'm completely obsessed with stencil color. It's like just Ooh. absolutely. Well, r- real my... quick. What is that? <laughs> oh, um, it was a way of mass producing the hand color um, because they, they employed uh, hundreds of women with tiny brushes to paint directly on the cell, but you could only do so much at a time, right? Right. And so what they did is instead, they would have hundreds of women cutting out teeny, teeny little stencils. <laughs> and, um, and then they would use a velvet band dipped in pigment and stamp the colors onto the stencil. I mean, use the, sten- oh, wow. the stencil onto the film. And it got so sophisticated during near the end of the silent era that, I mean, you almost, it had almost perfect um, matching. Like the early stuff had, you know, outside the line stuff. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the silent era, they had almost perfect matching of, you know, they'd gotten so good at it. Oh, wow. And of course it died out with, um, you know, when Technicolor and then also, when sound on film came in, you couldn't do a lot of the things you had done with film before because you couldn't interfere with the soundtrack. Hey, oh, we brought right. it back to we brought it back to our topic. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Very okay. cool. Oh, well, yeah. I'm I'm excited to delve into that later. Yeah. I guess there's a bunch of competing ones spring up around that time. Mm-hmm. As is typical, but um, <laughs> what it was Fox, right? That ended up 
being the first one out the gate with an actual um, – they purchased – the patent from the inventor. Yeah. The, uh, Lee DeForest and Theodore Case. Well, I guess yes. they were working on something together and then Theodore Case left and mm-hmm. his, he developed his own ideas, which eventually became movie tone, which right. was then bought by Fox. Right. And they were the first ones out of the gate with the, um, the sound on film, but they weren't the first out of the gate with sound because, Warner Brothers had their synchronized soundtracks. Um, it wasn't a sound film, but it was a synchronized soundtrack that was on old the old sound on disc with the Vitaphone. Right. And that's like a film plus gramophone kind of thing. Right. But, uh, you know, the technology's advanced in, you know, the, the 10 years or so, 15 years since we last <laughs> looked at the sound on disc. Uh, yes. And it's the synchronization is better, but not still not perfect (laughs) well and and it leads to frustration because we have vitaphone discs without movies and movies without vitaphone discs Uh. so (laughs) you know so you'll have like these tantalizing little you know 10 minute records of Mm -hmm. a soundtrack to a film that no longer exists or vice versa (laughs) and it's just oh it's awful I mean, yeah. the advances in, in the sound quality are, are there, so that you know yes. it's gotten better. Um, but yeah, the, that synchronization is still a problem because I mean, it's first of all you have to like you have to cue things up exactly before right. you turn on the, the projector, and the 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 gramophone playback is like mechanically linked to the projector. Um, but you know, if anything goes wrong at all. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of screwed. <laughs> yep, you're back in the old. Yeah, there's a. It looked like some of the projectors had like a like a rheostat, so you could like turn a big dial and try and you know slow it down or speed it up and get them back in sync. You know, if you've lost a few frames in a splice or whatever, um, you know, but things could still drift off over the course of the the film. <laughs> things like yeah, that. yeah, you can see why they were just like okay, sound on film, no matter what. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was. It was better, but even if it hadn't been, it, the convenience right. is just so significantly different. You're like, oh, please save me, <laughs> you know? But Warner came out with uh, Don Juan in 1926, which the documentary mm-hmm. says is the first sound feature, but not a talkie. Can you right. explain a little bit what that means? What it means is that it would act exactly like a standard silent film, um, but it would have a full orchestral score. Okay. And um, and some of these films also had vocal music and like nonsense noises. For example, show people and the man who laughs both had love themes that they would play during emotional moments mm. that were actually sung. They just didn't have synchronized talking. And in Sunrise, mm. um, in Sunrise, um, the two lead characters accidentally stop traffic, and they have like cab drivers yelling at them, going ah but not really saying anything right. that you would call dialogue. Okay. So, so yeah. So it was basically everything but spoken word. Huh. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and clashes of swords in Don Juan's case. Ah, okay. I saw, I haven't seen that one yet, but. <laughs> it's, uh, uh. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, you're a guy, so I, I don't know. I, I've noticed that the fans tend to be women. <laughs> okay. Um, be, because they're into like this, I call it the Pepe Le Pew movies because like, <laughs> like they, they get to the, oh my darling, how beautiful you are, you know, kind of thing. You're like, uh, oh God, shoot me. Yeah. I really don't enjoy them particularly. So yeah. I, I, yeah. So, but I, I mean, it you. does have some, some kind of interesting visual effects and it has some good sequences and it has some really crazy hats if that's your thing. But, um, okay. I do like but, cats. So, yeah. So if you're into hats, you know, go for it. But I, I don't think it's very good. I mean, it, it's, it's John Barrymore and he tended to kind of indulge himself. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I have mixed feelings about it, but anyway, yeah. So then they, uh, point out that in 1927, there's the jazz singer also using Vitaphone, mm-hmm. Uh, but call it not a real talkie, right? Because only two scenes have dialogue, which I'm I'm kind of gratified to to hear it referred to that way. Because I kind of yeah. feel like I really don't want this <laughs> to be you know such a historic movie, even though people still reference it as the first talkie. Um, yeah, it's it's not 
it's not very good. No. It's not. And there's blackface, yeah. which, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm already giving it the side eye. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, oh, but careful, you're going to get people be like, oh, you need to look at context. And then I have, you know, yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> It's how I am with Birth of a Nation. People like it. It was the first epic. I'm like, no. And they're like, it was the first movie filmed Sean at the White House. I'm like, no. And they're like, it's the first movie to have subtle acting. I'm like, have you seen it? <laughs> and so yeah. it's just like, uh, yeah, some movies, it they somehow capture people's. But I mean, it was the movie that set off the floodgates of the talkie revolution. So mm. I guess we can give it credit for that but yeah it was a i find part talkies to be incredibly awkward though where you know you're, you're kind of into the movie as a silent film and then suddenly you get this incredibly awkward dialogue yeah i mean it's and, like city lights is that way too mm-hmm. uh where you get the like this you get dialogue of the you know the boss calling into the factory and but then none of the rest oh, of it is a talkie oh modern times oh yeah. modern times sorry yeah I just I watched them like both in on a weekend, so I probably got them mixed up. Yeah, and they have similar. Um, well, I mean, it's all Chaplin, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it is awkward too because they live in a world where if your car crashes, it, ba- it makes a crash sound. Right. And if you know you knock on the door, there's a knock, but the the dialogue is written, so it's it kind of. <laughs> so much of film is like an unspoken agreement between the audience and the filmmaker, you know, where we accept that music follows these people wherever they go. Mm-hmm. We accept certain things as reality, but just like this weirdest thing that's equally unreal will just knock us out of it. Yeah. And and just because it violates the agreement that we had made. I think, yeah, maybe it's just that issue of like internal consistency Mm-hmm. within the single film it's like well it's either talk or don't <laughs> yeah pick up your minds guys yeah i mean my big confession is i really don't like synchronized scores mm. because they're invariably too happy they're very high pitched and they're very happy <laughs> oh, really? and so like you're having like this really serious scene and they're playing like this jaunty jig and i'm like no stop it <laughs> <laughs> So movie soundtracks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was I was watching one of the uh, selections that you suggested uh, for the, the visual effects list that we'll get to in a few minutes here um, the other night, and it was just like, what is going on with this music? It doesn't seem to go with the film at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very distressing. That happens. That happens sometimes with modern stuff. If you if you want to be tortured. Um, what you need to do is watch the Tiger Lily soundtrack for Variety. Um, <laughs> okay. It, if you want to hear like a man singing in falsetto, sing talking, what's going on on the screen, accompanied by repetitive accordion, then it's for you. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I was just like, everyone's jaw dropped. Like this, it's universally the most reviled score ever. But yeah, that's, that's another topic too. <laughs> It's movie scores, um, silent film scores. That's like a huge. Yeah. Yeah. Intriguing. So after the Jazz Singer, the next year is Warner's uh, The Lights of New York, which Mm -hmm. is billed as the first all-talking picture. Still Vitaphone, though. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the first, you know, all-talking sound-on film, you know, movie tone picture was? I wasn't able to... Find that quickly online. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I know there's alias Jimmy Valentine, but I'm trying, I don't remember which soundtrack style MGM used because I know that was their first sound film. So, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll try and dig somewhere before this is released and see if I can put it in mm-hmm. the show notes at least. Yeah, because at this point, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm done with movies. We're done. Sound has come, you know. <laughs> Not interested. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, early talkies are so awkward for the most part. Yeah. Um, unless unless they have machine guns, you pretty much can't get me to watch one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, just just going over all of that like we just did, it's it's pretty amazing stretch of time that, you know, the sound kind of progressed from this live accompaniment to trying to synchronize it with, you know, a separate recording and getting it actually onto the films. Like you said, over the course of 30 years, it's yeah, pretty amazing. It's pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for that. And we'll be back in just a minute. And uh, Fritzy's going to suggest some 
early silent visual effects films that you might want to check out. We'll get to Fritzy's silent VFX picks in a few minutes, but I just wanted to share a little good news with you first. At the Visual Effects Society Summit in late October 2016, former Cinefx publisher Don Shea was honored. Now, the recording I have is from the audience, so it's not the best quality, but I cleaned it up a little bit, and I'm sure you'll agree it's worth just to hear this moment. Introducing him here is Mike Chambers, chairman of the board of the Visual Effects Society. Next up, I am very pleased to present a lifetime membership in the VES to Don Shea. States Air Force. Don founded Cinefex Magazine in 1980 and continued at the helm as its publisher for 36 years until his recent retirement. <laughs> Following in his footsteps, his son Greg has taken the reins as publisher of Cinefex, continuing the tradition of this much admired publication. Don himself has written extensively about motion pictures and VFX technology and co-authored books on the making of Ghostbusters and Terminator 2 with Jody Duncan. Their book on the making of Jurassic Park was a New York Times bestseller. Don has also contributed video interviews to the special edition supplements of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, and Aliens, and for four seasons served as a visual effects consultant for the Discovery Channel television series Movie Magic. As well, Don is an avid photographer who's traveled extensively throughout Africa for decades. And in 2008, he published Endangered Liaisons, an award-winning coffee table book celebrating the continent and its wildlife. Don has been a longtime member and great supporter of our society, and he received the VES Board of Directors Award in 2005. I can't think of anyone more deserving of this lifetime membership than Don Shea. words, so uh, anyway, thank you all, uh, and thank you to the VES, so this is a great honor. Uh, when Mike called me two or three weeks ago to tell me that I had been selected for this honor at a lifetime, or a uh, lifetime membership, I thought, oh, that's nice, you know, I'm retiring and kind of stepping into the shadows, uh, hopefully, uh, and I thought that was really nice, and, and then uh, I went back onto the website and did a little checking, and I saw that I've actually done, done this eight times before, and I found that I'm in the company of some people I greatly admire. Three, at least three of them are here in the room tonight. Um, so I thank you all. Um, the magazine continues on without me. Uh, since I left, we've gone from quarterly to bi-monthly. And I uh, appreciate, through the years, all the support you've given us. And, uh, uh, hope to continue giving it back to you in return. Thank you. Many thanks to Don's wife, Estelle, for the audio recording of the event. And my sincere congratulations to Don for his award. If it wasn't for you, Don, I wouldn't have known so much about effects over the years, and I am in your debt. So let's get back to Fritzy Kramer of MoviesSilently.com for her silent movie effects recommendations. So what, what would you suggest if, if we're interested in learning more about visual effects, but our knowledge of silent films isn't that great? What should we look at? Well, I always tell people, if you want to see something really beautiful from the silent era, you want to watch something by Maurice Turner. Okay. And um, he was a French director who worked in um, Hollywood. Oh, I mean, and when I say Hollywood, I mean the American film industry because he worked in <laughs> New Jersey, New York. Anyway, you know what I mean. Okay. Um, and the one I really like to recommend visually is The Bluebird from 1918. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's based on a children's story. And it involves children with their dog brought to life and also 
bread, light, milk, um, <laughs> fire. Oh, and the loaf of sugar. <laughs> and the loaf of sugar. Right. And, um, and then you have um, night and some other – and what he does, um, he uses a combination of like uh, lighting, double exposure and um, tinting and toning. Mm-hmm. Um, to create this sort of wonderfully surreal dream world. Oh, and very clever costuming, I should also mention. Yeah, and, I love the, there's like a, yeah. a fire, I, uh, I guess a, a fairy, a fire fairy, or just a, yes. the embodiment of fire that is like, yeah. has some really cool uh, costuming. And it's just, it's so sumptuous. Um, and uh, his films are usually boring as heck, <laughs> but <laughs> that one moves along at a nicer pace than usual. Yeah. It's just absolutely stunning. Like, if you just want to be completely absorbed in beauty, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if it has a particular, what, what I would call, like, you know, this big, like a, a single scene that would be the greatest. It's just the whole thing. He creates this beautiful fantasy world mm-hmm. and you kind of want to live in it. <laughs> Yeah, and there there are um, a couple of sequences in it that are this really cool silhouette kind of shadow play um, mm-hmm. sequences, uh, like the neighbor across the street, or there's this mm-hmm. boat sequence that's done that way, um, mm-hmm. and also uh, like the later in the boat sequence, there's this beautiful miniature and this you know some islands off in the distance. I have to admit, I wasn't really clear on why exactly these kids needed to go find the bluebird, but. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I consider, I really actually hate this story. Um, it's so simplistic, mm-hmm. you know, and then the whole idea of you should be happy to die in poverty because your happiness is right around the corner. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. be quiet. When they break you the know? fourth wall at the end. Yeah. I'm like, oh, please. You know, my goodness. This yeah. is, this, do you realize this is, this is advocating serfdom? You know, I'm getting all worked up. So yeah, I'm not a big fan, but it's gorgeous. It is. Yeah, it certainly is pretty. Yeah. And then um, the next one is The Whispering Chorus. Um, It's directed by Cecil B. DeMille, and it's probably the closest thing he ever did to an art film. Hmm. He uses, again, the beloved double exposure and also some really gorgeous artwork on the title cards. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, to have like this visualization of a man's conscience as he kind of goes down the primrose path to damnation, etc. And there's this rumor that supposedly... DeMille made the movie and it bombed and he was like, ah, they have rejected my art. Now I shall surely only make trash from now on. <laughs> and it's not true. Charlie Chaplin spread it in his autobiography, <laughs> but it's, it's not true. It actually made a nice profit. Um, it's just DeMille like trash and there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> you know, but let's let's be honest here. And it's a, like, a really grim story, too. Mm-hmm. I was I was really surprised that just like. <laughs> you know, you, yes. like 20 minutes in already, you know, our hero is like fishing a dead body out of the river and faking his own death. I'm like, whoa, where is this going to go from yeah. here? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do think DeMille, spoiler alert, um, kind of overplayed his hand a little bit when he had the main character um, sort of walk through with his arms straight out after he's electrocuted. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I thought that the scene in the electric chair where he has the rose and he squeezes it in his hand was incredibly effective. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was that was very cool. Yeah. What you got next? next <laughs> uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1916, which is an absolutely terrible movie, but it has this pioneering underwater photography and... It, that is just it, your jaw sort of drops when you see it because, I mean, you have the old-fashioned diving suits which are really cool looking mm-hmm. anyway. You've got the real fish, you've got the real water all around, and it's just really cool looking. And and then you've got these absolutely dreadful actors. And <laughs> <laughs> Universal, um, I believe it was an abs- it was an enormous hit for them that year because everyone liked the spectacle. But yeah, it was it was just a. Yeah, it's but, it's one of those movies where you have to warn people. Yeah, yeah, that this was the one that I was talking about, where it was like I was watching a version that had music synchronized with it, and I don't know if it was meant to be the original intended music or what, but it was like the tone was way off of what was going on. It, and, it may not. It probably isn't. I mean, yeah. usually when when movies have their original score, they they make a big deal of it, you know, based on the original notes by mm-hmm. you know things like that. So yeah. Yeah, it probably wasn't. And that's another case where 
a really good soundtrack can elevate a so-so film, Mm -hmm. but a bad soundtrack can torpedo even the best one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it was billed on the title card as the first submarine photo play ever filmed. There was a second card after that that says, the submarine scenes in this production were made possible by the use of the Williamson inventions and were directed under the personal supervision of the Williamson brothers who alone have solved the secret of under the ocean photography. (laughs) You know, Universal was never, never, never shy about bragging. Let's put it that way. (laughs) But I think it's cool. Like I looked them up uh, as Ernest and George Williamson and they, uh, at least Ernest was involved in like, you know, motion pictures and doing underwater photography for like close to 50 years. Mm. It was just amazing that, uh, you know, his invention and he just kept working on it. Yeah. It's always nice to see someone, you know, lasted a long time in the industry. Yeah. And then um, the next one is The Burning Crucible from 1923, which is a um, Russian emigre film made in Paris. Um, because when the revolution happened, basically the entire Russian film industry relocated to um, Crimea. Mm-hmm. And then when the the czarist army was falling. They're like, okay, bye. So they were in the middle of making a movie. So, so they fled, they fled on a ship called the Pantera. And the whole time they were filming this movie. So they're like, our movie starts in Crimea, but then our hero goes to Turkey and then he's in Turkey and he's going to uh, Paris. Yeah, yeah, we're in Paris now. So that's, that was their movie. You know? And then they got established. They bought a studio. The producer who was with them had the, had the brains to pack all their old movies. So he was able to redistribute them in France because France loved Russian films. Hmm. And so that, was a, that gave them this nice cash influx while they were making their own movies Mm -hmm. and so the burning crucible is one of the films they produced um it's written directed and starring um ivan mozhukin who is their biggest star um Hmm. i I love him because he's absolutely nuts and he can do anything (laughs) like he can do comedy he can do drama he can do action Mm -hmm. you ask him to do it and he can do it and he also had this really quirky quirky sense of humor which comes out in these really bizarre scenes especially um, he plays a detective, and at the detective agency, there are all these like weird rooms with spinning. Oh yeah, there's spin- there's one yeah. room with just eyeballs. <laughs> there's one room with like disembodied hands typing on typewriters. Yeah, like, yeah. that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and there was some really cool uh, special effects work in that detective agency too, where it's like you know there's like this horseshoe shaped uh, you know desk row of guys sitting behind it. And then the guy comes in to talk to the detectives and all of their chairs spread out, like move automatically and the desk mm-hmm. collapses into the floor and there's a podium that pops out of the floor. And it's like, whoa, I wasn't expecting all of that. Very cool. And then Mojukin, when um, he's introduced, is looking, you know, kind of weird mm-hmm. and dor- dorky. And then <laughs> um, using what looks like, I think he used just a string. Um, he like lowers his nose and pops some gum out of the side of his mouth and combs his hair. And then suddenly he's normal. Right. It's so wonderfully weird yeah. that I was, <laughs> I was completely entranced because you can always win me over with that. sort of thing. <laughs> Um, and there's this whole dream sequence at the beginning of the film too. That's like, he's being burned at the stake and, yeah. uh, and the, the main, uh, the lady protagonist is, uh, you know, having this dream about him uh, because I guess she's been reading a book about his exploits, <laughs> but she, you know, she dreams that he's being burned at the stake and then that, you know, he's chasing her and then he's in a church and he's a beggar on the street. And it's this whole like quick sequence. And I did, I absolutely on first watch did not realize it was all the same guy. Yeah. I mean, see what I tell you versatility. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm completely like trying to, push him back into the mainstream that's like my project yeah because he did this absolutely amazing work and you have to be like a nerd's nerd to know who he is <laughs> i really i really enjoyed his performance i i kind of felt like at the start there was like some weird intrigue and it it kind of turned a little more straight more romance toward the second half right of it. but right. it's like i was totally hooked by that point so <laughs> yeah yeah we're like whoa and here's a funny thing um mojukin's friends did not think he was funny oh really <laughs> they actually asked him not to do comedy <laughs> and i'm like my goodness i think he's hilarious yeah this guy's great yeah 
Thank you for introducing me to him. That that was very cool. And the last one is The Lost World, which you've already discussed on the show, you said. And it's a special one for me because it's not the first silent film I saw, but it was the first silent film I wanted to see because they used clips of it in a documentary. And I was like, you know, tiny little kid. And Mm -hmm. so here I am bopping over to VHS rental store in the 80s. And I'm like, hi, you know, do you have Lost World? <laughs> and they, you know, the teenager at the counter is like, what? <laughs> so when I got older and got into silent film, mm-hmm. it was one of the first things I bought. And nice. I love, I love dinosaurs and I love stop motion. So I'm obviously very happy. Yeah. If you go back and, and listen to our uh, Ray Harryhausen episode, I think it was episode three. Um, we, we talk a lot about this and the, the stop motion they did for it. it was pretty amazing stuff for the time. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. And I love the like the personalities of the different dinosaurs, and and then there's that wonderful scene where the Allosaurus, I think, mm-hmm. attacks the Triceratops. Mm-hmm. It's just like so oh so dynamic. And then um, I also like the way everyone reacts. I mean, uh, interacts with the creatures, like you know the the Brontosaurus is sweeping you know things over in London with his tail, and right, um, yeah, it's just I don't know, it, it just um, oh it, that, it, it's that whole sequence at the end when. <laughs> When oh, he yeah. escapes and <laughs> yeah. it's just it's sort of a and I kind of like that he wins. <laughs> like he breaks out and he swims away and he's like, forget you people. And you know, they don't kill him or anything. Yeah. I'm like, good, you know. <laughs> let the Brontosaurus win. And then um I don't know, did you have a chance to get to the penalty? Uh I did not, but why don't you tell us about it? The penalty, it's one of Lon Chaney's early hits. Um Lon Chaney's best known, of course, for Phantom of the Opera. Right. But it's not really his best performance. I mean, picking a best performance of Lon Chaney is like impossible because he gave so many great ones. But in the penalty, he actually played a double amputee um, by strapping his legs behind him. He actually cut off his own circulation. It was quite painful. And then he padded up. He was very slim. And so he padded up his chest so that you wouldn't notice the bulk of his doubled legs. And then he um, he had he worked with the costumer so that the coat had an extra swoop in the back, um, like a little bit of a little bit more give Mm -hmm. so that it would also hide his legs. They actually supposedly this is the sequence is lost, but supposedly they actually put a short sequence in of him walking around just to prove to people that he was not (laughs) an amputee. And a lot of times you don't believe these stories, but with this you do because he's so convincing and huh. with Lon Chaney, he was the special effects. Like, they didn't need much because he was it. Very cool. I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting to that one. Thank you for those. That's, um, that's definitely a lot, of, uh, a lot of good film <laughs> to dive yeah. into there for silent stuff. Um, I know my, my knowledge of silent film is not, not nearly where it should be. So, yeah, again, thank you for your blog. It's it's a, an incredible resource, and I hope people oh, go so check much. it out. Um, thank you. And so that's moviessilently.com, correct? Correct. And where is there anywhere else people can find you or your work? Um, I'm on Twitter, um, at Movies Silently. Okay. And then I occasionally pop up at film festivals, um, silent film festivals incognito. So, okay. Um, yeah, and then... <laughs> Um, and other than that, um, yeah, movies silently is the best place to get me. And then I'm occasionally on Vimeo and YouTube as well. Excellent. Well, we'll put links to that in the show notes. Great. Thank you again, Fritzy, for coming on. This has been so great talking with you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You can find our website and the detailed show notes for this episode at opticalpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud at username opticalpodcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It's free and easy to do. Just search for Optical Podcast on iTunes or follow the link from our website. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us reach new listeners. A big thanks to Cinefix for helping sponsor us, and you can head to Cinefix.com to order issue 152, covering Kong, Skull Island, A Cure for Wellness, The Great Wall, and Logan. You can also get the new issue in the Cinefix iPad app, along with every back issue of the magazine, including issue 7, covering the career of Willis O'Brien, which we mentioned here uh, in relation to The Lost World, and uh, covered more in depth in an interview with Don Shea in our episode 8. Just follow the link on our website 
to the Cinefix iPad app. Thanks again to Fritzi Kramer for chatting with us. You can read her silent film reviews and history at MoviesSilently.com. That link, along with a ton of links from our discussion, will be in the show notes. Thanks to Digital Drew for all of the music in this episode, and you can find more of his music at digitaldrew.com. That's digital, D-R-O-O.com. And thanks to Mike Gower for designing our logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time. If you are the kind of person who just listened through all of those end credits all the way here to the end of the podcast, you might be the person I'm looking for. Maybe. There's a lot of qualifiers, so hang on. The story is, I want to get more women on the podcast. I want to interview uh, the women who have done and are doing the great visual effects work, the special effects, makeup effects, all of that. That's a big goal for me. I want to get more women interviews on the show this year. Also, I'm thinking of changing up the format of the show a little bit, and I would love to have a co-host on the show, a regular co-host, same person every time, uh, that we can have an ongoing discussion about these effects. Um, And I would love for that co-host to be a woman, so we can have that perspective on the show every time, and not just when I happen to think about it. Um, so, and, and the last caveat is, this is a volunteer position. There's no money involved. I am not making money on the show. <laughs> this show is a money bit, uh, if anything. But, uh, you know, maybe in the future that'll change. Um, but right now, it's a volunteer position. So if you would love to chat about visual effects uh, on an ongoing basis, on a regular basis, you have time to do it at least once a month. I would love to do it more often uh, once we get things rolling, uh, if that's possible, you know, every three weeks, every two weeks. Uh, no promises on that, but that's that's my hope. Um, you know, and you just, if you're into VFX and you're passionate about this, you don't have to have a career in it. If you do, that's great. I expect the people with careers in effects are probably working stupid hours till, you know, two or 3 a.m. and don't have time for sleep, let alone being on a podcast. But, uh, you know, if you do, though, that's great. If you have time for this, if this is something you're passionate about uh, and you're a woman, I would love to hear from you. Drop me a line at feedback at opticalpodcast.com and let's talk.